Let me invite you this morning to turn now to the book of Judges. The book of Judges, it comes right after the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. And I'll encourage you to put your finger in chapter 6. We'll read uh, a good portion from that chapter and those that follow. But we're going to begin by reading in chapter 2, verse 7. So put your finger in chapter 6, but find your way to chapter 2, verse 7. And that's where we'll begin in just a moment. Father, as we open the pages of this book, we pray that you would, as we sang, break now the bread of life to us. That you would show us yourself within your word, show us ourselves, and show us our Savior. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This book of Judges begins just a few years after the Israelites had entered into the promised land. You remember the story, perhaps. God had brought them out of their slavery in Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He had given them this great leader, Moses, who led them across the wilderness for 40 years and right up to the cusp of the promised land, standing there at the River Jordan. And then Joshua... Moses' godly protege had taken them across the river and into the land of promise, dividing up the land among the 12 tribes. They were wonderful days, these days in the book of Joshua, heady days in the lives of the people of God. But then, as we turn to the very next book in the scriptures, the book of Judges, we read this beginning in chapter 2, verse 7. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Now that last phrase is an ominous phrase that really sets the tone for what is in many ways a sad book, this book of Judges. The people, this generation that arose and the generation that arose after them went back and forth between following the Lord and serving the gods of the nations around them. In fact, as you turn now to chapter 6, we're going to see that the events that will unfold before us this morning really form sort of a pattern for the whole of this book. I'll read you the first five verses of chapter 6, and then I'll point out the pattern that they show us. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. 
And we see this same pattern unfolding again and again and again throughout these chapters in the book of Judges. The sons of Israel, verse 1, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of, in this case, the Midianites, sometimes the Moabites, sometimes the Philistines, and so on. But we read this kind of phrase again and again. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of their enemies. But God's discipline is always for our good, is it not? To bring us to repentance. And so what we also often find is in the midst of God's discipline toward his wayward people, we find a phrase like that here in verse 6. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord in the book of Judges, he repeatedly sent them help. He sent them men like Samson, Ehud, Jephthah, and so on. Judges, they're called. Warriors, deliverers, Christ figures, really, who would come and rescue the people from their enemies, deliver them from the consequences of their own sins. This is the pattern that happens again and again in this book. The people rebel against the Lord, The Lord brings about retribution from their neighbors round about, but that retribution brings them to repentance, and that repentance issues in God's rescue. Rebellion, retribution, repentance, rescue. That's the pattern of the book of Judges. And in some senses, then, this book of Judges is like the gospel of Jesus in miniature, isn't it? Doesn't this same pattern describe our own lives as well as Christians? We have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so often the Lord sends difficulty and discipline into our lives so that we might be brought to repentance. And when we finally come to our senses and cry to the Lord in repentance, we find that he sent us a mighty deliverer. Not Samson, not Jephthah, not Ehud, but Jesus Christ the righteous to rescue us from the consequences of our own sins. What mercy of God. He's always ready to send his wayward people a deliverer. So while there is much sin to lament when we read through the book of Judges, and really when we read through the pages of our own lives, where sin abounds in Judges and in our own lives, grace abounds all the more. God is constantly rescuing his people from their iniquities. He is constantly sending help. He always has a deliverer ready at hand for those who cry to him. Well, here in Judges 6, as the Midianites were terrorizing the countryside, ravaging the crops, slaughtering the Israelites' livestock, starving the people of Israel, really, the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, as we read there in verse 6, and he raised up for them a deliverer named Gideon. God took Gideon from working in his father's wheat fields, and he made him into a great warrior, a great captain. And in chapter 7, this Gideon led the armies of Israel onto the battlefield to face these menacing Midianites. And what follows in chapter 7 and 8 is quite a memorable account of an amazing intervention of God. And I just want one more time to read through and sort of piece that account together for you. We'll actually begin in chapter 6, verse 33, and then I'll skip ahead and I'll keep you up to date with where I am. But begin in chapter 6, 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. 
So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Beazrites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him, and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. Then chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the three hundred men who lapped, and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the three hundred men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now look at verse 12. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In fact, if you read into chapter 8, you'll find that there were 135,000 Midianite soldiers. Verse 16. He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise, and behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerera, as far as the edge of Abel Maholat by Tabath. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they were pursuing Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. But he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? 
Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. Now it's with that last verse that I want us to spend the rest of our time and give the rest of our attention this morning. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. And I bring this verse to you this morning because I wonder how many of us can identify with Gideon and his men. I have no doubt that many of you know what it is to be weary. Even perhaps today, you feel it. Some of you are simply physically weary. Age has caught up with you. Unhealth is wearing you down. Others of you have incredibly full plates with what goes on at home and at work and in church and in your family. You're weary. Some of us, perhaps, as Paul ponders in the New Testament, are weary in well-doing. You've been serving the Lord and serving the Lord, and you're not seeing it turn out the way that you thought. Others of us are wearied by certain family dynamics, aren't we? Strain in relationships, the waywardness of a child, the brokenness in a home, all these things are wearying to our souls. Some of you are worn down, perhaps, like Gideon in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, by criticism. Maybe for some of you, it's your own sin that has your soul out of breath. It's a lot of work running from the Lord, isn't it? And it's absolutely exhausting when you are fighting against Him. And even once you've stopped running and stopped fighting, then feelings of guilt and the lingering consequences of your sin can be heavy burdens. Some of you are weary. Perhaps for you, it's just the monotony of life or the loneliness of your days or some frustration at work some difficult relationship, some financial problem. But whatever the burden, I feel certain that many of you can identify in some small way with Gideon and his men. Then Gideon and the 300 who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over weary. But we need to ask, why were these 300 men so weary? What was the cause of their exhaustion? Well, the most obvious thing is the long marches that these men had made from the territories of Manasseh and Zebulun and Naphtali to this valley of Jezreel. And now, having marched all that way to the battlefield, they have had to run in heavy pursuit from Jezreel to the Jordan River. So they had marched dozens of dozens of miles in a short space of time just to arrive at the battlefield, and now they've run a near marathon trying to pursue the armies of Midian to the Jordan River. So surely a good bit of their weariness that we read about here in verse 4 is just sheer physical exhaustion. But I want to suggest to you that there was probably a weariness that it was even greater than that. The whole situation that we just read about in Judges chapter 6 and 7 was surely emotionally and spiritually draining for these men. Remember, they had lived through seven years of oppression. Seven years of watching their fields go up in flames. 
Seven years of burying their cattle after the Midianites had made their raids. Seven years of having to hide in caves when these Midianite raiders were on the march. Seven years of getting to a place where you finally feel like you've got things back and going from the last raid. And they have allowed it to get back and going from the last raid just long enough to make it worth their while to come in and steal everything again. That's what they lived to through for seven years. And now they finally get the courage to go out and meet the Midianites in battle. And they gather what surely must have seemed like a good-sized army. 32,000 men of Israel gathered in the valley of Jezreel. Only to arrive there and see 135,000 men on the other side of the valley. Spread out as numerous as locusts, we read. And if that weren't enough... God whittled their number down from 32,000 first to 10,000 and then finally to a mere 300 men. Now, it is true the Lord promised that he would fight for these 300 men and that he would deliver Midian into their hands. And as it turns out, he did so marvelously. But you put yourself on the battlefield in a detachment of 300 men staring across the valley at 135,000 shields and swords gleaming in the afternoon sun. More than 400 of them for every one of you. And I think you'll see that even the men of strongest faith in Israel must have felt their hearts melt that day when the battle was ready to be pitched. And if you doubt that their hearts probably melted, many of them, just picture yourself facing some difficulty in your life. It seems insurmountable to you, but it's probably not near as insurmountable as 135,000 Midianite soldiers. Picture yourself when you face difficulty. Yes, you believe that God will help you, I hope. And yes, you probably, in many cases, ask him to help your unbelief. But then, even with the faith that you have, and even though you wish this weren't the case, many of you, many times, still find yourself fretting, don't you? and worrying, and calculating the odds, and coming up with a plan B just in case God doesn't come through. That's how we are. And surely that's how these men were. And all of that worrying, and calculating, and fretting, as you know, can wear you absolutely threadbare emotionally. Stress and fear can weary a body or a soul more than a week's worth of work, can it not? And so I think that we see that these men in Judges 8-4 were right where we've been, but perhaps the strain was 10 times, perhaps 20 times more difficult than anything we can imagine. We can't picture ourselves standing across from 135,000 people who want to lop our heads off. But that's where these men were. And even after God won this great victory for them, and they're pursuing the Midianites over hill and dale, their souls and their bodies and their nerves must have still been absolutely shot simply from the stress of it all. They must have felt like Elijah after his great victory on Mount Carmel. You remember that? The Lord answered his prayer in fire, and he slew the prophets of Baal, and it was just a marvelous victory. And then... A few verses later, we find Elijah laying down under a broom tree, sleeping for hours, just exhausted from all that had gone on, even the great victory of the Lord. And that's where we find Gideon and his men. Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over weary, physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. 
God had given them more than they could handle by themselves. God had put them intentionally in the face of insurmountable odds. And as I say, he did it intentionally. It was by design, we read in chapter 7. The odds weren't 400 to 1 by happenstance. The odds weren't 400 to 1 because the Israelites couldn't have gathered a larger army. The odds were 400 to 1 because God ordained it that way. God intentionally put these 300 men in the face of something that they could not handle, an army they could not defeat on their own. Now that may sound backwards to us, that God gave them more than they could handle. Because we're so used to hearing people say in our culture, quote, God never gives us more than we could handle. Some of you perhaps have quoted that line of wisdom yourself. But if you look carefully at the Bible, you'll find that that is not true at all. It's true that God won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle, tempted to sin, 1 Corinthians 10. But when it comes to God's testing of our faith, when it comes to his allowing difficult providences, opposition, bodily infirmity, emotional drain, insurmountable odds. When it comes to these kind of things, God is not averse to setting us across the valley from an opponent that by any human, re- human reckoning we simply cannot overcome. In fact, one of the chief ways that God grows our faith, it seems to me, is by doing just that. By giving us more than we can handle ourselves. By allowing us, 2 Corinthians 1.8, to be burdened excessively beyond our strength. And then coming in and applying his strength to the situation. That's how we grow. But why does God grow us that way? Why does God grow us by burdening us excessively beyond our strength and then coming in and rescuing us by his strength? Well, so that we will not say, Judges 7-2, my own power has delivered me. So that we won't boast in how strong our faith was. So that in the words of Paul, we will not trust in ourselves, 2 Corinthians 1-9, but in God who raises the dead. Gideon and his 300 men surely could have said amen to Paul's words had they been written in their day. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's how God works in this world, especially among his own people. He gives us more than we can handle. He allows us to face stresses and strains He places before us odds that we cannot surmount, and then he himself surmounts them so that we will learn not to trust ourselves, but to rely upon his strength. And if that's the way God works in the world, now coming back around to Judges 8.4, if that's the way God works in the world, if God's plan for our spiritual growth often leaves us burdened excessively beyond our strength, then we should not be surprised to find ourselves as children of God, sometimes like Gideon and his men, weary. So I ask you again, are you weary this morning? Has God placed upon you some burden that is seemingly beyond your strength? Some burden that actually is beyond your strength? What's wearying you right now? I wonder if you can put your finger on it. Some of you are saying, weary, yes, yes, I I can latch on to that, I understand that. But what is it that's wearying you? Put your finger on it if you can. As I said, perhaps it's in the realm of your health. Sometimes, though they do everything to the contrary, and though they wish it weren't so, the doctors have to give us a diagnosis 
that we know we cannot beat alone. Or maybe you're weary because you've been praying for years for the conversion of some loved one and they seem no closer to the Lord than they were 10 years ago and you become keenly aware that you cannot change their hearts. Or maybe you've realized that no matter how hard you try as a parent, you cannot make your child be what they ought to be. Maybe it's something at work, something in your finances that feels like 135,000 against 300. Or maybe you look across our culture in this Western world and see that the horizon seems ever darker. Churches have less and less influence. By and large, moral standards continue to decay rapidly from where some of you uh, lived 50 years ago in this same city. Things that were unthinkable 50 years ago are now perfectly acceptable and even applauded in our culture. And there seems to be absolutely no hope of stemming the tide. And it's wearying when we think about these things, if we care about our culture. Perhaps, as I said earlier, you're just at a stage in your life where you never seem to be able to catch up. And you're just physically tired, which leaves you emotionally drained as well. Or, as I mentioned already as well, perhaps it's your own sin that seems insurmountable. You look at some difficulty that you've created for yourself, some sin in your life, and you say to yourself, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get over this. I don't know if I'll ever be able to overcome this sin. And you find yourself saying with the apostle, I keep doing the things I would not like to do and not doing the things that I want to do. I keep doing the very things I hate. And it's wearying me. What is it for you? What is the test of your faith right now? What is it that perhaps is burdening you beyond your strength? So much of the life of faith is by design, God's design, lived against incredible odds. So many of our days as Christians find us plodding along in a Judges 8-4 kind of experience. Gideon and the 300 men who are with him came to the Jordan and crossed over weary. That's the Christian life so often. And some of you are there even this morning. You are weary in the life of faith. And yet, what does it say? Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over weary, yet pursuing. If you're weary this morning, I hope that you are still pursuing the Lord. I hope that you've not sat down in your weariness and given up. I hope that you're still pressing on in obedience to the Lord, in faith in His promises, in well-doing, in praising His name. Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and they crossed over weary yet pursuing. They were weary, but they kept going. They were weary, but they still did what they knew God would have them to do. And that's what I want to urge you to do this morning. No matter how hard it may be, I want to urge you to cross the river that's in front of you, the obstacle that's made you weary, and keep going, pursuing the Lord, pursuing His good will for your life. Now look at Gideon and his men one more time. These men had marched, as we said, miles and miles, and they had done so carrying all of their military gear. They had stood before an army of 135,000 men with their backs against the wall like their forefathers at the Red Sea, facing a fear that you and I cannot possibly fathom. 
If God did not come through for them that night, their bodies were going to be piled up like chicken bones at daybreak, and their heads perhaps placed on pikes for a warning to the rest of Israel. And then, when God did his marvels against all odds, they didn't just relax and breathe a sigh of relief. They had to chase these Midianites over hill and dale from Jezreel to the Jordan River. And when they finally arrived at the banks of the river and perhaps paused for a brief moment of refreshment from the waters, their countrymen, the Ephraimites, caught up with them and began to criticize and complain. And I just ask you, after all these men had been through, over those seven years of Midianite terrorism and over these few days of exhausting military advance, Would we be surprised to find these men coming to the Jordan here in chapter 8, verse 4, and calling off the pursuit? Would you not have been tempted at this point just to stop there at the banks of the river, to let the Ephraimites continue the pursuit, and to go back home? And to say, God has done great things for us today, and we're exhausted. Let's call it a day. This great victory is good enough for us. Let's not go to the trouble of fording this river. We're weary and we cannot keep pursuing. That is what I would have been tempted to say. But these men were weary, yet pursuing. And think of how much more Gideon's men might have been tempted to turn back had the victory not been so great that day. Think about how much they'd have been tempted to just sit down and give up had they been, like we often are, struggling for every little gain in the Christian life. Waiting many, many years to see anything like a Judges 7 kind of victory. That's where we live most of the time. Sometimes God intervenes like he did here and does marvelous things in a moment. But most of the time we plug along and we plug along and we plug along and things never seem to turn out like we thought. And we go long periods of time having to walk by faith and not by sight. And if that had been the case that day, you can imagine how much more difficult it would have been for them to keep pursuing. But even if that had been the case, and even if it is the case in your life, the prerogative of faith would still have been the same. Weary, yet pursuing. I just think these three words really ought to be some of the great watchwords in our Christian lives. Weary, yet pursuing. And I want to urge you to take them to heart this morning, to make them your own. I know you're tempted, if you're getting older now, to just settle in and to coast spiritually and to leave the hard work of the Christian life to someone who's not as weary as you are. I know that it is tempting for those of you who have prayed long with seeming few answers to your prayers to just give up praying and to go on to other things. I know the temptation to lose heart if your service to the Lord seems to be bearing little fruit, whether it be in pointing your kids to Jesus or sharing the gospel with your family or discipling some immature Christian or preaching the gospel or whatever it may be. When you work and work and work for the kingdom and you don't see the fruit that you wanted to see, you can be tempted to just give up. And I can see easily how some of you, after all those years on your job, might think that it's now easier to give up doing your work heartily as unto the Lord, trying to have a Christian testimony in your workplace 
and begin just to try to make it through to the weekend. I feel the temptation since our church continues to be small and seemingly insignificant in the wide world to give up praying for revival and for conversions and for this lost neighborhood to be turned right side up for Jesus and to just plug along and have very low horizons. I know how easy it is for some of you after all these years as a Christian to let your personal devotions to the Lord slide and to begin living no longer on daily bread but on past experiences. And believe me, I know how tempting it can be after so many swings and misses in your attempts to put away that besetting sin to just decide you're going to give in and live with it. I know what it is, in other words, to be so weary, so discouraged, or so overwhelmed in the Christian life just to want to give up. Maybe not on the Christian life in general, but upon this area or that area or this area of faith that the Lord has called you to. Just, just to lay it down. And I also see the temptation that must have surely faced Gideon and his men after a long period of faithfulness and seeing the victory of the Lord to just sit by the Jordan River and bask in God's past victories and leave the pursuing to someone else and call it a day. These are our natural responses when we find ourselves weary in the Christian journey, weary in the Lord's work. Do we cross the river and keep pursuing? Or do we turn around and just go back to a normal life? And some of you are standing by the banks of the river even this morning, deciding what you should do. Some of you have been in pursuit of God. You've been fighting His battles for a long time now. And you're weary. And so perhaps even this week, some of you have been contemplating whether you ought to call off the dogs and just relax a little bit. Give up the pursuit of slaying that particular dragon of sin. Give up on giving yourself to that draining person in your life. Give up on continuing fervent in your life of prayer. Give up on winning your co-workers to Jesus. It doesn't seem to be working and I'm tired. God's done great things in your life, but now you've hit a wall and you feel like you can't keep going. Or maybe it's just you feel like you don't want to keep going. But before you turn back, I want you to take one last hard look at Gideon and his 300 weary men. After all that they had been through, after all that they had dealt with, after all the difficulties and then after all that God had done to deliver them, how easy it would have been to put their swords back in their sheaths and to table the idea of wading across this mighty river and to go back home and to sit in their easy chairs and to put up their feet and to begin telling war stories and to leave the hard work of pursuing God's ways for someone else who was not quite so weary. And yet, what do we read in the verse? Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary, yet pursuing. And that's what I want to be said of myself and of each and every one of you. Whether you are tempted to lay down your weapons out of sheer exhaustion or out of great discouragement or even out of just plain self-indulgence, I want you to be able to say, I'm weary and yet pursuing. I want you to be able to say when you are old and tired, I am weary, but the pursuit is on. I want you moms who feel every day like you're stretched to your breaking point and it will never end to be able to say, I am weary serving these children for the Lord, but I'm pursuing. I want you prayer warriors 
who have prayed so long without answers that you seek to keep praying, weary, yet pursuing. I want you men whose jobs put incredible pressures on you and make you feel like a deep walk with God is impossible at this stage of your life to be weary, yet pursuing. I want you sinners who just can't seem to get over the hump to get past your habits to not become so weary that you stop pursuing. I want you, when the baby dies in your womb, when the biopsy says it's cancer, when the loved one refuses to turn to Christ, when your prayer life seems blank, when your marriage is a mess, when your children will not listen, and when the world offers you a thousand easier ways to live your life and to satisfy your soul, to be weary, yet pursuing the Lord. And when God blesses your pursuit with great Gideon-like victories, I want you, like these 300 men, not to rest on your laurels, but to be pursuing just as hard. This is the Christian life. Sometimes we mount up with wings like eagles, and we walk and do not grow weary, and we run and do not get tired. Sometimes like Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, we feel as strong in the Lord as when we were half our current age. But the real test of faith is when we feel less like Caleb and more like Gideon and his 300 men. The real test of our faith is if we can be weary, yet pursuing. And so I urge you this morning to press on in the Christian life. Don't give up praying. Don't give up fighting your sin. Don't give up on that needy person in your life. Don't lay down your Bible Monday through Saturday. Don't give up sharing Christ at the ball field or with your coworkers or in your neighborhood. Don't cash in your chips or rest on your laurels. Run to the tape. Or as the author of Hebrews put it, let us run with endurance the race set before us. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Yes, it's true. Gideon and his men aren't the only biblical example of weary yet pursuing. They're not even the main example. If anyone was ever weary, surely it was this man on the cross. Physically weary, beaten beyond recognition, whipped with a cat of nine tails, pierced hand and foot, hung up to die and gasping for every piercing breath. And not only physically weary, but more than that, he was surely emotionally weary. Remember, forsaken by his own father because of our sins in those dark hours on the cross. And hardest of all for us to contemplate, perhaps, this Jesus, the God-man, was spiritually weary as well. Bearing the burden of all our sins. Isn't it a burden to carry your sins around? Isn't it wearying spiritually? Well, imagine carrying the sins of all God's people for all time in those three hours there as He hung on the cross. That's why He sweat drops of blood in the garden. Because He knew that what He was about to carry would burden Him excessively. That's why He asked, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I say if there was ever a weary man on the earth, it was Jesus of Nazareth. And yet... He endured the cross, Hebrews 12. He kept pursuing. And why did he do it? 
Well, according to Hebrews 12, Jesus kept pursuing. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. Jesus was able to be weary yet pursuing because there was a finish line ahead. And there was beyond that finish line a reward that awaited him. He knew that he could keep pursuing because someday he would cross over the tape. He knew that just ahead of him was a heavenly Jordan. When once crossed over would mean an end of all his pain and all his labors and all his weariness. And because this Jesus endured the cross, each of us who believe in his name will someday traverse that same river. You who are now so weary and heavy laden will someday finally physically come to Jesus and he will give you rest. That's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us pursuing. That's what keeps us running the race. The knowledge that someday soon the race will be over, the weariness will end, and we will run straight into the outstretched arms of Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. Let us be weary, yet pursuing. 